Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart, a teaching series from the book of Samuel. At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof, and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. Very similar to the Light in the Darkness series, which was about Genesis, and the Wandering series, which focused mostly on numbers but covered Exodus through Deuteronomy. We're going to look at First and Second Samuel. We're not going to read every passage. We're going to look at major passages and sort of cover the gaps in between, sort of review style. And we're going to focus on uh, a lot of things, but the, the main thing would be the storytelling, the storytelling that's going on here and what there is to be learned from the storytelling in these passages. That sometimes we can look at little chunks of things, but we miss maybe some bigger, deeper things because we're not paying attention to the narrative style. This will be more class style rather than like sermon style or something. So I hope that you are encouraged and I hope that you are convicted by some of the things that we read, but we are going to look at some information and some photos and maps and dates and those kinds of things, uh, because I think that adds to your understanding of the text. Because we're not reading all of the text, I think it would be great if you went maybe after the lesson and read the section that we cover in the text. So either later that night or maybe tomorrow morning, or maybe just after the series is done, sit down and read first and second Samuel straight through like a story. So I've been talking a lot in the last two series, the Genesis series, the light and the darkness series, and the wandering series that covers the rest of the Torah. I've been talking a lot about reading the Bible like a book. That's not something we typically do. We'll focus on a couple of verses or we'll read a little, little part of a story and that's fine. And it's okay to study the Bible that way. When you're doing discovery Bible study in a group with other people, it's best to pick just sort of one little small passage so that you can understand what's happening. You can uh, say it back in your own words without missing any details. You can focus on a, a single point of obedience that you need to walk away with from that passage. So that's great for transparent Bible study, for a discovery Bible study. Looking at a few verses or looking at a single story is the way to go. That's really great. For your daily Bible reading, I really suggest trying to work up a discipline to where you're reading three to five chapters a day, where you're reading big sections of the text. If you read the Bible an hour a day, I know it's a lot, um, but if you were able to read the Bible for an hour every day, you'd read the entire Bible in three months. And it would be a great blessing to you to do at least once in your life. If you just want to read the Bible straight through in a year, if you'll read about three chapters a day, I think you'll read um, pretty much the whole Bible in a year. And so any variations on that, of course, you can you can do the math. So if you were 
to work up a discipline where you were reading, you know, five or six chapters a day, you, you might read the Bible through twice in a year and you'd be able to see the big stories that are being told. So we're looking at first and second Samuel tonight. And I'm going to jump right in and read the text here in a little bit. I just want to let you know of two books that I used a couple of years ago when I first did this class at North Boulevard. So uh, I used a book called uh, A Son to Me by Peter Lightheart, and it is a, a commentary and exposition on First and Second Samuel. And the other book is called The David Story, and it's by Robert Alter. So if you recognize Robert Alter's name, he's the one that did the translation and commentary for the five books of Moses. And um, very similar, he's done a book that's just the story of David, the story of David, First and Second Samuel, and uh, a little bit of uh, the Kings. But um, it's also included in, in his entire translation and commentary of the entire Hebrew scriptures or what we would, what we Christians call the Old Testament, which he's done from Genesis all the way through all the prophets and everything. So um, you can get his entire Hebrew Bible, which I recommend, or if you want to get it book by book, like I did before he finished this entire translation, then this is from the story of David. So I use both of those in my personal studies in preparing for this class. Basically, I'm taking the notes from this old class that I did. I'm looking at them a few minutes before we go live. So these are not things that I've seen in a, a few years, but I think it'll be fun for both of us to go through them. I don't have any photos or anything tonight. I'm just going to put the scripture on the screen just from a web browser, and we're going to read it together. So you can read it on the screen with me, or you can um, read it in your own Bible. So we're going to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll read and then I will make some comments. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. I'm sorry, an Ephraithite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, 
that I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young, and they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child, I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Uh, your version says he probably. Uh, the scrolls at Qumran have the word she there. The word she probably makes more sense since it's Hannah who's talking this whole time that uh, Hannah is worshiping the Lord. Or it could be referring to Samuel, that he worshiped the Lord from that point forward. Um, either way works. It doesn't, doesn't really matter really either way. Okay, so that is 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll come back to chapter 2 in just a moment. So let's talk about just a few things with the text here. So I queue up my notes. So First and Second Samuel were originally one book. This one continuous Story. So why is there 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel? Was 1 Samuel so popular that they decided to do a sequel, 2 Samuel? It's nothing like that at all. It's just that the story is a long story. And so to fit on a scroll, you would have part of the story on one scroll and the remainder of the story on the second scroll. And so uh, any of the books that you see like this that have 1 and 2, particularly from the Old Testament, it's because this is all that would fit on a scroll. You even see this really in the New Testament. Not with, uh, you know, with first and second Corinthians, this is a first letter and then a second letter that is written later. That's a different story. But things like Luke and Acts, those are separate volumes of a two volume set, basically written by Luke about Jesus and then the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And again, both of them are about the length 
of a scroll for the time. So uh, in all these stories, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, you can kind of look at the length of them and see that they're all kind of about the same length. And that is because that's the length of a standard scroll in the time. This is how they would have been sort of filed away in scripture arcs, in synagogues, in ancient libraries, and these kinds of things. So the books that we have now is more of what's known as a codex, a codex or codices. It would be a stack of loose pages kind of bound together, more similar to books that we have today. And they became very popular in large part because of the Gospels. The New Testament um, made great use of the codex when scrolls were, were still the primary technology. So New Testament Christians did not invent the codex, but they certainly made use of it. So in the New Testament time, most writing was about uh, 15 to 25% codex, 75 to 85% on scrolls. But the New Testament writings done at the same time were the opposite. Almost all of the New Testament texts that went out were done on codices, about 75 to 85%, and a few copies were done on scrolls, about 15 to 25%. And so what's the reason for the reversal there? Well, they found it was a lot easier to transport a codex in a pocket, to hide it, um, to um, be able to pass it around, to copy it page by page, and these kinds of things. And so they made use of early technology, just like we're doing right now. We're making use of Facebook Live and iPhones and iPads and those kinds of things, because these are new technologies that are available to us. We're making as much use of them as we can. So going back to 1 Samuel, you have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel because that's all that would fit on a standard scroll at the time. It was the limitations of the technology at the time. Uh, first and second King, I'm sorry, First Kings chapters one and two were probably the end of the story of what we call Samuel. And uh, some believe it was written or mostly written around the 10th century uh, before Christ, uh, 10th century BC. So that would be during the reign of Solomon. So not long after the events about which it writes. Of course, Solomon is mentioned in the final chapters and into uh, 1 Kings. So uh, it would be written just very shortly after the events, some people believe. Some people, of course, date it later than that. I tend to favor these earlier dates um, from most of the biblical scholars. So let's look at the actual text and what happens. So right out of the gate, it gives you a little bit of a, of a fake, okay? Because it begins, there was a man, right? But who's the whole chapter about? Is it about the man Elkanah? No, it's about Hannah, right? So uh, what we see is there's Hannah and there's and Penina. There's these two wives, one with children, one barren. This is very reminiscent of Leah and Rachel. Uh, the barrenness is very reminiscent of, of Sarai, of Rebecca, of Rachel, and many more throughout uh, scripture. It's an annunciation story, just like with, uh, so what does annunciation mean? It means someone is coming and announcing that there's going to be a child. So we see that with the angel's with um, John the Baptist and with uh, Christ to, to, to Mary and to Elizabeth in, in the New Testament. And we see it to uh, happen with Abraham and Sarai in um, Genesis. So it's an, it's an annunciation story that there's going to be a child. There's some lineage in there for setup. It refers to Elkanah as an Ephathite or an, or an Ephraimite. It's probably just letting us know what, what part of Israel he lived in. Um, because his son becomes a priest, he would have to be a Levite in order for Samuel to become a priest. And so, as we know, Levites did not have their own land, but they lived scattered throughout all of Israel. So probably Elkanah was a Levite living in 
uh, Ephraim living in this place that's uh, shortened to Ramah, uh, calling uh, Ramah. So there's some lineage in there for setup. Um, and then there's some continuing repetitive history that, you know, the year after year they did this. And then some specific recent history as a prelude. So it's all kind of setting up. So once again, we see just like it did with the book of Genesis in a much grander fashion, but we see beginning with sort of lineage, beginning with this big picture and sort of zooming down into this one family and what's going on inside their household, even private intimate conversations between Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. And so we can already see what's coming because of all this foreshadowing. All this is very purposefully drawing on the previous stories in scripture. Uh, to, to get us to this point. So it's worth pointing out that everything in Scripture to this point is basically a continuous story. So all the, the stories that precede this, you've got Genesis and the rest of the Torah and everything that happens with the Exodus and the wandering in the desert. And then you've got Joshua and the judges and all the, you know, the conquest of Canaan and Israel growing and maturing and uh, all the wars and everything that happens were there. And then you have, um, you know, the book of Ruth and the, the story that happens that sort of sets up the whole David story. And that's when we get to first Samuel. And so everything really is just still a one continuous story. I think this is really amazing because we think of the Old Testament as a collection of a bunch of different stories, but really it's just one story. And it's not even until late in the Old Testament that it starts to kind of break up and cover things from different angles. And you've got different people writing at similar times and there's some overlap and those kinds of things. But coming into first and second Samuel, we're just dealing with basically one continuous story coming right straight through. And so first and second Samuel is continuing the story of the scripture, but we don't know who the author is. It appears to be a new author that possibly wrote just this story. And, um, this author, whoever it may be, male or female, we don't know who wrote it, probably a male, but could have been a female. Whoever was the author of the story is clearly drawing on the previous stories coming into this one as a way of tying it together, but also to use as foreshadowing. So based on everything that we've just seen in the opening uh, verses of First Samuel chapter 1, we can already see what's coming. There's going to be some kind of divine intervention, possibly a messenger of God announcing the arrival of a child, just like with Abraham, John the Baptist, Jesus, of course. Um, the child arrives and is dedicated to the Lord. Uh, the text refers to Samuel as a lad. This is the same Hebrew term, if you'll recall, used to regard to Isaac in the story of the sacrifice. He's called the lad, right? Note the parallels that the author of Samuel is trying to draw from Jewish history and from previous scripture. He's peppering the story with foreshadowing by drawing on conventions already well known to the Israelite readers, the Israelite hearers of this story. Uh, the child lives faithfully and is powerful because of the Lord's blessing and is in some way going to be a savior to Israel. So lots of things foreshadowing, not just what's going to happen in this story, but what is also to come centuries after the story takes place. So the first thing to take note of, 10 centuries before Christ, the story of Christ is being set up in great detail. And so this uh, means I need to double down on a point that I've made before, which is all scripture points to Christ. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in his second letter that uh, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach what is true, et cetera, et cetera. Second Timothy chapter three, uh, verses 14 through 17, you can look that up. What scripture was Paul talking about? Was he talking about the letter that he was currently writing? No, he was talking about the scripture. I mean, certainly can be applied to that now. But what he was talking about was the scripture that they used at the time, which would is what we would call the Old Testament. To them, it was just the scriptures, the Bible. That's all they had. So he's talking about the Old Testament, the law, the prophets. What does Paul say about it? He says, in there is everything that you need to receive the salvation that comes through trusting in Jesus. That's what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
So all of scripture points to Jesus. The second point I want to make here is that the Bible is one story. It's a collection of many stories, but these many stories by many authors over millennia make up one tale. And this, for me, is one of the strongest apologetics for the Bible. So we said that word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, meaning to give a defense. This is one of the strongest defenses for the Bible being real, being true, being actually from God. This is one of the strongest apologetics for the Bible as a whole that we have today being constructed in actuality by God's Holy Spirit. God is the only being to endure throughout all of this time. No human lived throughout all of this time. Only God lived throughout the millennia through which these stories have taken place. And the story is told so perfectly and so completely, it had to have been created by a creative mind that had the ingenuity and the patience to craft it over thousands of years while still giving each culture along the way everything they need in order to worship him and be loved by him. I mean, think of that. This story is apply, is ap- applicable to any culture at any time in any place anywhere in the history of the universe. So that's the second point. Uh, <clears throat> every time you read your Bible, you should consider where what you're reading fits into this larger narrative. And so this is the third point I want to make, which is a good theology is arrived at through a careful reading of Scripture. Now, we have a tendency of getting focused on one verse or even one phrase, and we can forget the larger picture where that Scripture fits in. Um, There's lots of examples. I'm not going to go into any just for the sake of time tonight, but uh, lots of times we misuse Scriptures or use Scripture really strongly for a purpose that maybe is not its biggest intent. And so we want to make sure that when we're looking at a specific story, that we're looking at it in the context of the larger narrative of the chapter that it's in, of the book that it's in, of the Testament that it's in, of the Bible that it's in, of the creation that it's in. We want to look at it all in context. And so we want to make sure that we get some complete pictures. Without a careful reading of Scripture, all of Scripture uh, not just the scripture currently under scrutiny. Uh, without a careful reading of all scripture, we can walk away with some incomplete pictures about God and about ourselves. So quick review on those three points. The first point is all scripture points to Christ. The second point is the Bible is one story. And the third point is a good theology is arrived at through a careful reading of all scripture. Got it? Great. Let's go on. So if you look around uh, verse 28 or so, uh, you see uh, she says something about asking of the Lord, and then he's lent to the Lord. What she, she says, um, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and uh, he or she worshiped the Lord there it's, uh, right at the end of chapter one. That asking and the lent, you know, I asked the Lord. And uh, lending him to the Lord. That's a varied form of the same word in Hebrew. The author is making a pun, a little wordplay. And the reason why I point this out, the reason why it's important to kind of see some of these things from the old text, Robert Alter is the one that really brings these to light for me in his translations and commentary. He's looking at the narrative style. And when the author is making a little wordplay right there, they're not just having fun, they're trying to highlight something. They're trying to show you something. And so what they're showing right here is uh, she asks for the Lord and now she lends to the Lord. And she they're using that same word. And basically she's saying, um, I asked, please Lord, and now he will live to please the Lord. You see how when you hear it in English where you use the same word, now suddenly your ears turn on, oh, there's something happening here that I need 
to pay attention to. I'll have a little more to say about that in a second. Uh, look at uh, a line like this where uh, Elkanah says, am I not better to you than 10 sons? Robert Alter points out how this comment simultaneously shows Elkanah's deep love for Hannah and also his inability to understand how she feels. I know lots of friends that have uh, had, had miscarriages, have lost young children, have lost spouses, and have been very hurt by things that people have said to them, people who are desperately trying to make a connection, trying to say something loving, trying to say something encouraging, trying to find some kind of uh, positive thinking or silver lining in some kind of situation and ended up just saying something really hurtful. We see that happening here. That that one short line, am I not better to you than 10 sons, is full of such reality, is full of such emotion, and is full of Elkanah's deep love, but also his his uh, inability to understand uh, what it's like as a, as a barren woman. It's just, it's so rich. And I point these out to show how well-written this story is. This isn't just a history book. It, though it does aim to record history, but it is a story. There are facts, but its primary interest is the truth. Okay, so the facts, I believe in the facts, but its primary interest is the truth, and in the truth is this story. And uh, though this is a book that tells you a lot about God and our relationship to him, it's also, it's a beautiful and compelling and a good story. And it's there for us to enjoy. And there's when we enjoy it as a good story, when we enjoy it as something beautiful, we connect with it on sort of this kind of higher plane that we can't really access if we're if we've got our our academic spectacles on and we're only looking at it for information or for instructions. If we're looking at it as an instruction manual or as a history book, it's not wrong to do that. There are instructions here. There is history here. But if that's the only way that we look at it, we're going to miss out on a beautiful, beautiful love letter from our Lord. And so like any great story, how surprising from the start, right? So uh, again, the first words, there was a man, and yet who's the main character of this chapter? Who's the hero? Who is the faithful person? It's not the man, Elkanah, although he seems to be a faithful man. He's not our protagonist. The faithful person is not even the priest. It's not even that man. It's a woman. And it's not even a woman who by ancient and maybe even not so ancient Near East standards, um, which be shown honor by bearing children, but it's a barren woman. And so right out of the gate, you were surprised that the protagonist of at least this chapter and possibly the whole story is a barren woman. Now, contrast that with who should be the greatest character in the story. Well, it ought to be Eli, right? I mean, he's the priest. He's the judge. He's the leader of Israel. Let's consider how great a priest Eli really is. His sons are pretty terrible. We'll see that in just a second. He's sitting outside. He's being the gatekeeper of worship. You can come in. You can't. He accuses Hannah of being drunk. She isn't. He says the Lord will answer her prayer when he doesn't even know what the prayer is or seem to consult the Lord in any way. Uh, in a lot of ways, he's a parody of the messenger of the Lord in these Annunciation scenes, which we'll see here in chapter two that comes up. We'll see in chapter two in a second. It says, uh, a man of God came to Eli. And you'll notice that it doesn't say another man of God came to Eli, almost to contrast Eli with someone who is actually a man of God. Now, Eli's curse that we're going to read in chapter two declares honor for those who honor God and dishonor for those who don't. A clear foreshadowing of events that are to come in the next few chapters. So the lowest character of the story is the only one who really shows us something about God. And this upside down economy of God's kingdom is presented to us in the lowly woman's name. The name Hannah means favored one. So right away, the author is giving you some 
contrast some uh, narrative irony, some dramatic irony, the fact that she is a barren woman and hated by the other wife in the house, but her name means favored one. And by the end of the chapter, she does become someone who is favored. But it's also a picture of Israel at the beginning of the story. I mean, Israel, they're the favored ones of the Lord, right? But they are barren in their collective faith, here represented by Eli and his sons. Uh, Maybe Eli thought Hannah was drunk because he'd never seen anyone actually pray at the temple. He'd never seen it before, couldn't recognize it. And it's this prayer I want to focus on for just a, a, a short second. Consider the naive simplicity of Hannah's prayer. If you give him to me, I'll give him to you. That's your prayer. That's it. <laughs> How beautiful of a prayer is that? It's complete devotion to the Lord, complete humility, to crying out a vulnerability before him, trusting him. Everything that you can learn from the Lord's prayer in Luke 11 is here in Hannah's short prayer. Read all of Jesus's teachings on prayer in Luke 11 or on the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll find it exemplified here. Simplicity, devotion, persistence, complete reliance, and trusting in the Lord. Direct, honest, undecorated, simple. I've already talked about her prayer longer than it took her to pray it. But contrast that prayer of request, that prayer of desperation, to her song in chapter 2. And so let's read that. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Let's keep reading chapter 2 while we're here. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then you can take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. 
Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him? out of all the tribes of Israel, to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever." And everyone who is left in your house shall come to him, to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. So Hannah's song contrasted by the story of Eli and his sons. You'll notice the line there about Samuel increasing in uh, growing in favor with God and man, a line that's almost repeated verbatim in Luke 2, 52, talking about Jesus. Again, the scripture pointing to Jesus, New Testament pointing back at the stories of the Old Testament. The naive simplicity of Hannah's prayer in chapter 1 versus the abundance of her worship here in chapter 2. And contrast Hannah's worship to the sons of Eli, who were supposed to be in charge of the worship. Right? Eli's sons are made fun of by the narrator. Uh, they're pulling meat from every pot kettle, cauldron, pan. The picture that the narrator is painting is that they're putting meat in whatever they can find, wherever they can get it. They're going after meat. And they don't even wait for the burning of the fat. I mean, that's that's the offering of the Lord is burning, burning the offering. But they don't even wait for that. 
They just take what they want. And their worship, honestly, is a lot like ours can be. It's demanding prayers, taking what we want out of our, our lust and our gluttony, and refusing to acknowledge God when our bellies are full of our own doing. Their worship is prayerless and self-serving. And we see them treating sacrifices just like mere pieces of meat, thrusting their forks into others' pots. So their adultery that we find out here in chapter two is no surprise. And perhaps now knowing our author's ingenuity and skill of storytelling, perhaps the first observation is really just a euphemism for the second, thrusting their forks into others' pots. Hannah instead continues to honor the Lord by giving up her sacrifice, her only son. In fact, compare Hannah's worship here to the Magnificat in Luke 1 that Mary sings. And Hannah comes yearly to bring him a new cloak, a new robe that she's lovingly made with her own hands. Again, in just a short, simple phrase, we see a complete picture of a mother's faithful love year after year, masterful storytelling. And the joy of Hannah is the prelude to the entire book of Samuel. Hannah's prayer is specifically about turning Israel's current state upside down. That Hannah's upside down situation has been made right by the Lord, that's foreshadowing that Israel's upside down situation is about to do the same. Okay, so what have we learned? We've learned some general things this evening about Scripture. We've learned that all Scripture points to Christ. We've learned that the Bible is one story. And we've learned that theology must be developed through a careful reading of all Scripture. Here's what we can learn about Hannah's relationship with God. Her prayers were naked and simple, but her worship goes on and on. So uh, I heard someone say, uh, K.P. Yohannan once said about prayer, he said, be very specific in your prayers. Don't be specific about how God should answer those prayers. Isn't that interesting? He said, be very specific in your prayer. Pray about everything. Be very specific in your prayers, but don't tell God how to answer the prayers. Don't be, don't give God specifics. Be specific in what you pray about, but don't tell God how to answer those prayers. Here, she comes bringing her barrenness to the Lord and says, if you do give me a, a child, I will give him to you. Very simple prayer, naked and simple. And when the Lord grants her request, her worship just goes on and on. And now 3,000 years later, we sit here and we read it together. This series is called After God's Own Heart. And we all know that that's a phrase that talks about David, who we'll meet a little later. But I think we'll see before that, it's also about Samuel, who becomes the real priest in a land that has been priestless for some time. And I hope that you can see it, that story of being after God's own heart begins with Hannah, begins with her beautiful prayer her beautiful faithfulness to the Lord and to her family. Her prayers were naked and simple, but her worship goes on and on. So the questions that I'll leave you with this evening are this. Number one, what are you praying to the Lord about? And what is the quality of your prayer? Number two, what are you worshiping the Lord for? And what is the quality of of your worship. In all these things, are you more like Hannah 
or were you more like the sons of Eli? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.